Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Turn in your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 6, the book of Shemot, the book of names. And uh, we're in the midst of uh, telling the, the great story of the Exodus out of Egypt. Beginning at Exodus chapter 6 and in verse 2, the words read, And I appeared to Abraham. In the Hebrew, the portion is called Vaera, which means, And I appeared. But before we kind of dive into that moment, let me just backtrack just a little to set the stage for the great contrast that God is getting ready to share with Moses. Last week, when we began the study of Moses, we talked about the testimony of Moses, the man. We talked about uh, the fact that he had a very unusual birth and that he had a, uh, that God had destined him and purposed him uh, to come and to do the work that he was going to do. That is to uh, be, stand in, to be called of God, to be anointed of God, to help the sons of Israel. Uh, to be delivered from the Egyptians, and that it dated back to God's plan in that when he told Abraham that he said, your descendants will go down into Egypt, and they will become enslaved there, but I will go down with them, I will visit them, I will bring them back out uh, after 400 years, after four generations. And so we've come to the time of the Exodus at that time uh, when that's taking place. And we, in last week's portion, although we didn't go into the details, Moses has a very unusual experience. He has what we call the burning bush experience. Now, this is a very unique kind of experience as compared to what we have read in the previous book of the Bible of Genesis. Because when we read about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although they had very interesting uh, lives and interface with God, it's primarily... Uh, uh, not by a burning bush experience, probably the closest you can get to that is maybe Jacob's experience, seeing Jacob's ladder. You know, when he looked up into the heavens and he was startled uh, by what he saw. But this is down on earth. This, this is something that's happening right in Moses' immediate presence, this uh, bush that is burning but not consumed, and he's in the very presence of God. And what we took note of, and that's what I would like you to realize, is at this point, at the start of the book of Exodus, essentially Genesis up to this point has really given us about almost 2,000 years of biblical history. If you go from Genesis 1, from Adam up to this point, it's been almost 2,000 years. And God, the way he has displayed himself to man and to mankind, is in a very unusual uh, way in that it's all slanted from the theme of being the father, the heavenly father. And by calling Moses and saying, I will make you a father of many nations, and then you're, you'll have many descendants and the promise extended down through his son and through his grandson, you, you get this concept of the fathers. And, and uh, uh, in the Hebrew, we say avot, uh, the fathers, and that, and that God is has this relationship with the fathers. And it will because of the promises that he made to the fathers that things, certain events are going to happen now. And one of the things that we talked about last week is God's authority model. Something dramatic is getting ready to shift because in all times past, God has displayed himself from an authority model standpoint through the fathers. In other words, he's a heavenly father, and Abraham is a father, and, and, and the authority of the fathers over the houses has always been the structure, the rules, if you will, on how things are done. But things are getting different all of a sudden. We have a whole nation of Israel. They're enslaved at the moment, but there's a whole nation, and we can't just pick one father, you know, because there's not one tribe that's over all of them. And so what God does is he chooses a man. And he anoints him. He calls him. And he's going to use a different kind of authority model to come and lead the children of Israel. It's the authority of the anointing. It's the same authority that God will give to God's son who will come. Because the son who will come is called the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And we know that the Messiah has authority over us. It's the authority of the anointing, the call, being sent. It is the authority of the Father delegated down, and it's just as real as the Father's authority. And so we're now seeing this authority model begin to take shape 
in the form of getting ready to lead the children of Israel. And Moses has to come to terms with this. So we have seen uh, Moses have this burning bush experience. He has had this call. He's had this anointing. He's been given a staff and he's been said, go to Egypt, go talk to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is an authority figure. In fact, in Egypt, Pharaoh is such an authority figure. They think he's God. I mean, that's as big authority as you can get. If you're a God, you're ultimate authority. And Pharaoh is a God in Egypt. And so he's dispatched Moses with this anointing of God. I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to tell Pharaoh the children of Israel leaving and to let him go. So you can see this conflict begin to emerge. We're going to have a conflict between these authority models. Who's really God? Pharaoh or the God of the Hebrews? Who's really got the authority? And if you look at this as a model, you will find every conflict that's ever existed in the world has always been over who's got the authority. And I'm here to tell you that in these days, the conflict that we see going on in the Middle East, the conflict that is in the world that we're a part of, it's all the same conflict. Who's the biggest God in the Middle East? Is it Allah or is it the God of the Hebrews? We're getting ready to find out who's the biggest God. Well, this is a story about when it was against Egypt and the Egyptian gods. And um, so a lot of what we're going to hear in this instruction of these judgments that came upon Egypt is what's God's purpose here? What's his plan? What is he trying to illustrate and explain to us? And the one thing that will ring out from every judgment uh, that we are to learn from the Exodus experience is that God is purposing and attempting to manifest himself unto the sons of Israel, Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the whole world. He's trying to get the whole world to know that he's the Lord. And so he's going to use these circumstances uh, to do that. Now, the, wor- the verses that precede our portion where we begin is kind of the end of the previous portion, and it's where Moses himself has already gone back, and the first thing he did was he marched in there to Pharaoh and presented himself, and he said, uh, uh, I'm here from the God of the Hebrews. Now, the traditional teaching goes something like this. Moses went in, he presented himself to Pharaoh, and he said, uh, I'm Moses, I'm here representing the God of the Hebrews, and the God of the Hebrews says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, in Egypt, they got lots of gods. You know, they think bugs are God. They think snakes are God, frogs are God, the river Nile's a God, the sun's a God, the moon's a God, Pharaoh's a God, everybody's a God. And so the story says, Pharaoh turns to his wise men. He says, God of the Hebrews, God of the Hebrews. I've never heard of that one. Uh, see if there's anything written about the God of the Hebrews. And so they look through the books, and they don't find nothing. And they report back to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, we don't have anything about any God of the Hebrews. And so Pharaoh says to Moses... I do not know the God of the Hebrews. Therefore, I will not let the sons of Israel go. And the stage is now set for, oh, that's the problem. You need to know the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. So let me introduce him to you, Pharaoh. Only Moses is not quite ready to make that speech. In fact, as a result of the interchange, Pharaoh decides to get mean. And Pharaoh instructs that the children of Israel have to make their quota of bricks that they're making for him to build his cities without straw. They have to go, you know, Pharaoh's not going to supply the straw anymore. You've got to go out and get your own straw, and you have to make the same number of bricks. Your quota of bricks will not be less. And here's Moses for the first time going up and presenting to Pharaoh. This is not working out like what he thought it was supposed to be at the burning bush. Now, at the burning bush, that was an awesome moving experience for Moses. But he has now gone and translated what, you know, this conversation to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is not impressed. In fact, he flat says, I don't know the Lord. I don't have any idea who you're talking about. And so it's very clear that God knew this was going to happen, and he has purposed this so that he might manifest himself to Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the sons of Israel, and to us. But you you can't manifest yourself to somebody until they're listening, until they're paying attention, until they say, well, who? Then, Then you can begin to manifest 
uh, God unto him. And so there's a moment here where Moses cries out, where he's perplexed having gone to Pharaoh for the first time. And in verse 22 of chapter 5, it says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why hast thou brought harm to this people? Why didst thou ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done harm to this people, and thou hast not delivered thy people at all. Pretty serious conversation coming from Moses back to the Lord, don't you think? Hey, God, I got news for you. I came, I did exactly what you told me to do. It ain't working. And in fact, Pharaoh got upset. He says, we're a bunch of lazy bums and we got to now make, you know, our quota bricks without any straw being supplied. Man, because if we're, if we're so busy and wanting to go out and worship you, you know, uh, then we got plenty of time to make more bricks. And by the way, if you recall, I haven't seen you deliver anybody yet. Now, some teachers, in fact, this is the majority of teachers, actually take a slant off of this and then proceed into chapter 6 by saying, well, you know what the problem was here? Moses didn't have enough faith. Moses didn't have enough faith. Um, And so what God's going to have to do is he's going to have to kind of gently chastise it. He's going to have to correct him. And so he's going to make reference back to the fathers and uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here. And he's going to say, now, see, Moses, you know, you had the burning bush experience and and uh, you don't even believe me as much as, as the fathers believe me. And they never had a burning bush experience. And so he's going to make some kind of a comparison. And that's what most teachers do with this. I disagree with that. I don't think that's at all what this passage is trying to illustrate to us. It's not that I'm trying to defend Moses or try to make, you know, you know, say Moses had a lot of faith. The fact of the matter is, we talked about last week, Moses made a lot of mistakes. So I'm not trying to defend him at all. What I'm trying to say is I think the Lord is trying to get at something else. I think the Lord has perpetrated these things. I think, I think he's trying to get to something else. and He's trying to get everybody focused, including Moses, on what's going to happen. So now we're ready to read the passage in Exodus 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he shall let them go. And under compulsion, he shall drive them out of the land. The first thing he says to Moses, what did you expect Pharaoh to do? You expect him to just roll over and say, oh, uh, Adonai, God of the Hebrews. Oh, yes. And you're his representative. Oh, you had a burning bush experience. Oh, wonderful. Why don't you go ahead and load him up and get him out of here right now? And I'll, I'll be without any slaves. Did you think he was going to do that? No, he's not going to do that. Be reasonable. What I'm trying to show you is he's never going to let you go. But I'm going to make him let you go. Under compulsion, we're getting ready to find out who's God and who's not. Because whoever has the greater authority, the other will yield. And God is setting the stage to reveal himself. And so the first thing he says is he makes reference to the fathers and he says, God spoke further to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And the word Lord there, if you'll look in your Bibles, in verse 2 and in verse 3, if you, where I read Lord, you'll, most of your English Bibles will be a very large capital L and then smaller, but capital O-R-D. You see that? It's all capital letters. Now, there are other places in your Bible, in your English Bible, where it'll be capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Lord. Same word. We say the same word. Lord. But in this particular case... It's all capital letters. And the reason it's doing that, if you look at the front of your Bible, you will find out that the Bible translators and the printers, here's what they're trying to illustrate to you. There are two words, two Hebrew words for the word Lord that we use in all English Bibles. If it's all capital letters, like in this particular case, it is the name that God gave at the burning bush, made up of the four Hebrew letters, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, which the King James will try to pronounce for you and say Jehovah 
or whether some seminary graduates, they'll say Yahweh or Yahweh. They'll try to pronounce that name for you. But in most English Bibles, they'll just put Lord. Let me tell you about this particular name and how the Hebrews have traditionally treated this passage. If we are in a session in which that we are not, we have not gone before the Lord and honored God, like for example, this is Arab Shabbat. We've come and we have praised the Lord. We have uh, humbled our hearts. We have said the Shema. We have definitely recognized this is the assembly of the Lord. And in such cases, instead of saying yod heh vav or attempting to pronounce the name, the Hebrews would say Adonai. And the word Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. So if we were reading in the Hebrew, if I was reading from the scroll, the Torah scroll, the word there for Lord in the Hebrew would be yod heh vav Hey. I wouldn't pronounce that, but I would say Adonai. I would substitute the word Adonai for that, which is translated Lord. And the Christian translators, knowing this tradition, they put the word Lord in here, but they're designating to you so you'll understand it's not actually written Adonai in the text. It's actually this four-letter name of God, yod heh vav this special name that God gave at the burning bush. And what's being explained to us here is Abraham never knew that name. Abraham never knew my name, yod heh vav heh Oh, he knew me as Adonai. He knew me as Elohim. He knew me as El Shaddai, Almighty God. But he did not know me as yod heh vav heh You now know that, Moses. You see, I'm manifesting myself. I'm showing you something more than the fathers saw. I'm revealing myself to you. Now, the point I want to make to you is, this is not chastisement of Moses and his faith. This is God manifesting more and more of himself. And you miss the whole point of the conversation, if you don't take note of, God's doing something more here. And in fact, what God is getting ready to do is whereas in times past, for the previous 2,000 years, well, we've had natural disasters. We had a flood. We had all kinds of matter of natural things take place. There's going to be a big difference this time. Things are going to be by the hand of God. And he says, I'm going to put my hand on Egypt. You're going to see the hand of God. Now, that brings us to the other point of what a lot of teachers do with this. A lot of teachers are going to take these judgments. Water being turned into blood, gnats, frogs, moraine on cattle, hail, uh, and and they're all going to try to put some kind of natural spin on them. For example, they're going to say, uh, well, the water turning into blood. Well, that was some sort of uh, red mud flow that came down the River Nile. That was a, it was a big rain. It was a flood. And, and a bunch of Oklahoma red clay came flowing down the, um, the River Nile. And it looked red like blood. Or they'll try to explain other kinds of things. And in fact, there's an element of the first judgments where it appears that the magicians of Egypt are able to replicate some of these judgments, but even they... By the time we get to the gnats, even the magicians of Egypt advise Pharaoh and says, uh, this, this is the finger of God. This isn't natural. This isn't normal. This is God. Even they got the message. Now, it's amazing to me that the magicians of Egypt, who want to replicate and fool everybody with all kinds of illusion, they confess that it was the finger of God moving. But we modern scholars, of course, we want to say, no, it was some sort of natural thing. And the magicians were just stupid and they couldn't figure it out. Well, I submit to you that even the enemies of God who were standing in that day knew it was the hand of God. They knew something was different. And we're only talking about Egypt, which is the major political, economic, national power in the world at this point. They don't bow to anybody or anything, and Pharaoh doesn't bow to anybody. 
He may be, he may be king of Egypt and God in Egypt, but he really thinks he's kind of God of everything. And so for him to yield on any point, it's got to be serious. It's got to be real serious for him to be convinced and under compulsion to let the children of Israel go. So let me say to you right off the bat, I have a bias when I go through and I share the teaching of this. I do not believe. I think it is a bunch of nonsense that people say that the judgments that came upon Egypt were not the hand of God. Oh, there! now I guarantee you there are gnats in this world, but you ain't never seen the gnats that hit Egypt. When they got gnats, they had them in their eyes, up their nose, in their ears. They had them in their underwear. They had them in every bedroom, every house. Everything had gnats. It went, you went nuts. Can you imagine the nervous tension that must have come from gnats everywhere? That's when the magician said, this is clearly the finger of God. This is God's little pinky playing with us. This is God. This ain't normal. This ain't never happened. Now, gnats are a very explainable thing. But not like these gnats. And frogs and other things, these judgments that we're going to see, they're very explainable things when you have a few of them, but not like what Egypt got. Not at anything like what Egypt got. They knew. And the reason it really penetrated them is... This is the other observation that people don't get from this story, is every one of those judgments was a God of Egypt being judged. First one was a snake, the cobra. And when Moses walked in there with his staff, his staff ate their snakes. That ain't God. I'm God. I'm bigger than that God. And then the river now. I'm going to make your river now. Go away. You won't be able to use it for seven days. It ain't God. I'm God. And he systematically goes through every one of their gods and whacks them. Proving who's God and who's not. So I think it was very specific in its witness and testimony. And had you been there, you would have clearly agreed with Moses' rendition that the Lord surely delivered us with an outstretched arm and a mighty and powerful hand. There wouldn't be any doubt about it. In fact, God specifically says to Moses, that's what I'm going to be doing. He tells him in advance. He said, we're going to demonstrate the authority of God by me calling you, anointing you, and then you're going to go and you're going to make these announcements and I'm going to do it so that they'll know me. They'll know the Lord. So one of the things that we want to do right off the bat as we begin our study of this is to understand that God is trying to manifest himself to them. And if we fail in our study of the Exodus not to see that purpose and to answer that question, to, in other words, did we see God manifested to us, then we've missed the whole point of what the story is. It's going to be kind of a fanciful story, and then you're going to be listening to a lot of other teachers talk about nonsensical things. Because... The issue is God is manifesting himself to us. Now, and he emphasizes to Moses right here in this opening passage, when I appeared, when I showed up to Abraham, what Abraham understood me to be was a creator. He understood me to be a judge. I had judged the whole world by water. He understood me to be a father type and a friend to Abraham. He understood me to be a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. He understood me to be a God of blessing. And all of those things are wrapped up in what we understand to be Elohim, Adonai, and El Shaddai, Almighty God. When we say Almighty God, we're talking about all of those things. And the theme clearly is his role, God's role, as a father, a heavenly father to us. But as I said to you, we're getting ready to see a change. The change that's taking place is through the life of Moses, his call and his anointing, and which that Moses is now going to come forth in the manner of a prophet. 
a teacher, like unto a priest. In fact, his brother, Aaron, will become high priest of Israel. And Aaron is going to be called right along with Moses to come and do this service. By the mouth of two witnesses, they go and speak to Pharaoh, and he charges both of them. And so it's the work of a priest. If you will, an emissary, an ambassador of God, a, a intermediary between God. By the way, all of this is the model, the picture of the Son of God. This is the authority of the Son who's been sent, called, anointed by the Father to come and to do this work. And as I said, God compares his relationship to Abraham, but he says something new is now taking place. And the thing that he really emphasizes is this different name. This yod Hey vav Hey name. Now, I'm not going to go into a great detailed teaching with you tonight, but uh, let me just remind you of a couple of simple things. One of the things that the Hebrews have done is that they know that every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has its own teaching. In fact, uh, as the language was being formed, ancient Hebrew came out of a form of hieroglyphic. In other words, there were little figures and illustrations, and each letter originates. You can get a, a standard Bible dictionary, and you can go into the Hebrew language, and it'll show you all the way dated back to the original symbols, all the way through the Aramaic and, and of the ancient language. And like all languages that have been formed, ancient languages, they're little pictures. And so yod Hey vav Hey carries with it a certain understanding for each letter. In the case of the letter Yod, Yod is like Yod. This is a Yod. It looks like a hand. A hand. And so we know the letter Yod means something about the hand. We know that it's going to be by the hand of God that the children of Israel are going to be delivered. Not by a sword. Pharaoh's not going to let them go. Not by Moses. Not by an army, but by the hand of God. So he's manifesting himself. It's going to be by my hand. The hay letter, and there are two of them, is in the form of, it looks like a little doorway, but there's a little tiny opening in the letter, in the stroke, and so it appears in the ancient understanding, an open door. And what was understood from that letter was that something comes forth. Something will be coming through the door. And in the case of what... God has emphasized with Moses is, is that the children of Israel, by the hand of God, are going to receive salvation and deliverance. They're going to be saved out of the hand of Pharaoh. They're going to be delivered from bondage. That they're going to get those two things. And so you have two doors that, by the hand of God, they'll receive salvation and deliverance. Well, praise the Lord. That's a great message. And in fact, that was the great message that was being given to Moses. He was to go back to the children of Israel and to announce to them that God's hand will be providing salvation and deliverance. And what God did was he put a staff in his hand. And he said, what do you got, a staff? He said, by a shepherd's staff, by the hand of a shepherd, I will deliver my people. I will save my people. Now, one of the things, there's another letter in there, which I didn't mention to you, it's the letter Vav. And the letter Vav is an ancient nail. And what is not emphasized necessarily in the Old Testament about, but clearly is in the New Testament, because if you recall, when Yeshua is being crucified, is hung on the cross, when his hands are nailed to the cross, they put a sign above it. The sign said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In the Hebrew, it would have read, Yeshua ha-Netzarim, ve-Melech ha-Yehudim. And we know that the Jewish religious leaders got real upset about that sign. They didn't like that title. They did not like what they saw in that sign. They said, change something. And the reason is because the first letter of those four Hebrew words begins with Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. And Yeshua had said, when the Son of Man is lifted up like Moses' staff was lifted up, 
you will see the I am God. You will see salvation and deliverance come by the nailed hand of God, which is what yod vav means. So what is happening here with Moses and the children of Israel is really a precursor to something greater that's going to take place. When the Son of God, when the real anointed one comes, you can see the pattern right from the beginning, building and being set the stage. But the children of Israel are now in this dilemma. They're under the hand of Pharaoh. They're oppressed. They're in bitter bondage. They just want deliverance. I don't care how we get it, but I want deliverance. By the way, if you ever get into hospital uh, chaplain work where you're dealing in a hospice with the terminally ill or whatever, if you ever have an opportunity to minister, one of the things that you need to understand about people who are in that situation is they're looking for a miracle. If you're the doctor and you got a miracle, I believe in you. If you're a priest or you're a religious man if, and, and you got the miracle, I'm looking for the miracle. I'm just looking for a way to get past this. Somebody help me. I'm, I'll, you want me to believe in God? I'll believe in God. I'm looking for wherever salvation and deliverance is. And when people are in that situation, they're looking. But the one thing they got to see, they got to see the real thing. No false illusions. The real thing. And that's the way you could describe the children of Israel. They are in an impossible situation. They are doomed to slavery forever unless God brings them out. Because Pharaoh is too big, too strong. The Egyptians are too mighty. And he has oppressed them. There's no way for them to come out. So they're looking for, they're looking for the miracle. So you have the greatest contrast possible here at this point. And God understands that. He says, I've heard the cry of the people. I've seen the oppression. He said, now I will manifest me. I will manifest God to them. So that they'll know the Lord. So that they'll get it. Now that's the whole purpose and that's what we should be determining. If we were to fast forward now from that story. Let's say that we can accept that story. We recognize that what God did for the first 2,000 years was through the the fathers. Now through the second 2,000 years through the sons. And we see it's all about the Son of God. In fact, that 2,000 years after this event, we're going to have the Son of God show up. At the end, 2,000 years after the Exodus, we're going to have the Son of God show up to repeat these same things that Moses had been saying. And so we can say, well, the first 2,000 years, it was God revealing himself as the Father. Obviously, in the next 2,000 years, God's revealing himself as the Son, the Anointed One. And in this 2,000 years, every one of you have gone around saying, well, the Spirit of the Lord led me to... And we all know that the Spirit of God has been made manifest to us. So in the course of the last 6,000 years, we have seen God manifest himself to us as a Father, as a Son, and as the Holy Spirit. And on top of that, he's given us instruction and said, I am the Lord your God, and the Lord is a unified one. And that's what we said when we stood here this evening. And we said the Shema. We made confession with her mouth. And we said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is a unified one. He is Father. He is Son. He is Holy Spirit. And I would remind you, for all those that are struggling with that, Elohim, God, is masculine, gender, plural. We should say God's. We say God. We say Adonai, Lord, masculine, gender, plural. We should say Lords. We say Lord. Every name for God is plural. Every description of God is plural. Yet we know he's one. Echad. He's a unified one. And God is trying to manifest himself. And trying to show himself. And he's beginning here and he's saying, Moses, I'm going to show you something different. Something that your fathers didn't see before. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show God to you. I'm going to, so that you'll know me. Now, Moses has uh, got a little bit of a problem with this call. Uh, because he, uh, 
before I get to that question, I want to show you how God, how God specifically emphatically points this out to us. If you would look in there in, in Exodus chapter 6, what he says immediately after that, and he says, verse 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, God's purpose. And he says, I'm going to do four things. Anytime you see the number four, 40, 400, 4,000, it's something about the Messiah. That's just a truth. That's a Torah truth. You can take, go to the bank, spiritual bank of heaven on that one, deposit that. It's about that. It's about the Messiah. As a result of this emphatic statement, and as a result of the remembrance that we will have that comes from this great event of the Exodus and what will be the judgments upon Egypt, we're going to have a holiday made by God, a day of remembrance made for us. It's called the Passover. The story will ultimately come to the point to where that the final judgment that will come upon Egypt, which is the death of the firstborn, that he will command Israel to take a yearling lamb, bring it into their house on the 10th of Nisan, keep it there for four days, slay it on the eve of the 14th, roast it by fire, eat it in haste, eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread because we're leaving Egypt. That's it. Enough is enough. We're out of here. And as a result, we have this great event called the Passover. Next week, we'll specifically address it. But as a result of this emphatic statement made here in Exodus 6, the Hebrews traditionally, and this goes back to the earliest dates of the remembrance of keeping the Sabbath, or keeping the Passover rather, we do so by drinking four cups. And it's from this statement of what God said. I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you. And so we teach the Passover to our children and to each generation, reminding them of this is God's emphatic statement of what he was going to do. This is how he would save us. This is how he would deliver us by drinking four cups in the Passover. The first cup we call the cup of sanctification, being brought out, being separated. The second is called the cup of instruction, where we specifically are seeing the great judgment. We tell the story of the judgments, how God said he would deliver us. He would deliver us by great judgments. And then we say we have the cup of redemption because he said, I will redeem you. I will purchase you out of slavery. I will pay the price for you. So we have the cup of redemption. And then finally, we had drink a cup of praise. I will take you. Literally, what it means is I'll marry you. I will take you to be. I will marry you. I will make covenant. And we drink the cup of praise to God's future kingdom. When we will live with the Lord. And so those four cups have become the symbol of God's testimony to us dating back to that point. We eat the Passover, and we call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and for seven days we eat unleavened bread, just like our ancestors ate for seven days. They didn't have time to let the bread rise, so in the case of escaping and delivering, being delivered from the hand of the Egyptians, that seven days that they left before they crossed the Red Sea, we eat unleavened bread for seven days to remember this great deliverance, this great redemption that God gave to us our ancestors, of which when the anointed one came to bring salvation and deliverance to all men, guess what he used to teach and to illustrate his great work? The story of the Passover. Literally, he sat at the Passover dinner with the apostles, future apostles, and he said, I'm the bread. And he took the third cup, the cup of redemption, he said, this cup is about me. I'm here to redeem you. I'm going to purchase you out of the slavery of sin. And so we can see the pattern. It's so stunning and so profound that God, what he's starting here, is really a future manifestation for us to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. 
because God's going to manifest this to us. And in the course of the 2,000 years that follow, Israel going into the land up to the time of the Messiah, that's what God's doing, trying to manifest himself and show us the work of the Messiah, the great work of God's salvation and deliverance. And it's obvious God wants us to know him. Now, I want you to take note of something here. He didn't say, I want you to know a lot about God. I want you to know me. And one of the things that we teach in the spiritual world, it's like into the business world and anything that you're, where you're going to be successful, it is not what you know, brethren, it is who you know. And I'm here to tell you that in the spiritual walk, that is really true. It's not what you know about the Bible and spiritual things and history and, and all that and religiosity. And so it's who you know. And that is God's purpose here. God wants the sons of Israel to get to know who God is. He wants us to get to know because the purpose of all these judgments, he says, he starts off and he says, so that Pharaoh will know so that the sons of Israel will know, so that the Egyptians will know, so the whole world will know. He said, I'm, I'm popping all these judgments on them so that everybody will know. Everybody will get it and understand. But Moses is perplexed at this point. I mean, sounds like a great plan. However, it's, it's me, God. Remember, it's me, Moses. I'm here. And by the way, God, if you recall... Uh, the sons of Israel don't even listen to me. So how did you expect Pharaoh to listen to me? I mean, the good guys don't even listen to me. So how, what makes you think the, the bad guys are going to listen to me? And so he poses a, a rather, I think, reasonable question. And I think that any man who's going to go and be, quote, called, anointed, be sent of God, he ought to do a double take on that and say, but what authority are you going out to do this? On your good looks? Your wisdom, your knowledge, forget it. Nobody's going to listen to you. Not even the brethren will listen to you. One of the first things that we got to do is we got to get Moses squared away here with the Lord. There's got to come a point where Moses knows the Lord and the Lord knows Moses such that he's able to do the work of God. And I am here to tell you, brethren, if you do not know the Lord the way that Moses needs to get to know the Lord, you're not going to be able to accomplish anything in the kingdom. If, if you're going to go and try to use the authority of God, you know, to accomplish it, you better get the real authority of God. Because if you try to go out and do something on your authority, I guarantee you'll last a couple of weeks, a couple of months, maybe a couple of years, and then you'll run out of strength, and there's nothing left of you. And besides that, God's so big, he don't need you to do any favors for him. I mean, you need God. God don't need you. So if you're going to do the work of God, maybe you might want to get checked into his system. And let's do what God wants to do instead of what we want to do for God. And that was part of what Moses' problem was. You remember Moses back 40 years earlier slew an Egyptian man. He thought he was supposed to be the deliverer of Israel. He thought 40 years earlier he was supposed to lead the children of Israel out. He already learned that lesson. He killed that Egyptian and the sons of Israel turned around the next day and said, and said to him, said, who made you judge and prince over us? Uh, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just kind of thought it was a good idea. And he ended up running off as a coward. Now it's 40 years later, and now Moses is trying to get it right. This is how we're going to serve. I want you to follow along as Moses asks this question, how God answers him. And in chapter 6 and beginning at verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. They did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? And then he adds this also and he says, Besides that, I don't talk too good. I'm of unskilled speech. You know, even if I was trying to do it on my own, God, I have a confession to make. I'm not very good at this. Well, I, to a certain extent, I think that's important to know. I think, I think that's important to know. 
So it says here, and it's a very simple little verse. It says, verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He gave them a charge. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, he's already said, Moses, go, go talk to Pharaoh. Go tell him. So what's this? He gives them a charge. Now, I want you to conjure up within your imagination for a little bit. The word charge to us can also carry in our language, you know, like an electrical jolt. A charge. You know, if you got, you know, you stuck your finger over there and lights off, you know, you get your attention. In effect, that's what happened. That's when Moses and Aaron both got their anointing. This is when they got it. Up to this point, it's all been a good idea. It's been a kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, I'd like to cooperate with you, God, so forth. Now we have some authority from God. And in fact, if you do a word study and you go back in, it says when he said he gave him a charge, he said he gave him the authority to issue a command of God. And he said, so when you go up to Pharaoh, you're not going to go up, Moses, and ask Pharaoh to let the people go. You're going to tell them. You're going to tell them from me. You're going to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Adonai, God of the Hebrews, says, let the people go. And he says, and you will be the message because I'm going to make him do it. Now, one of the most fundamental things that I think that we got to get out of this, if this is a lesson about the Messiah, this is a lesson about the anointed one, that's one of the most profound things that we need to come away from this with. Do not be fooled by the Messiah coming and like a lamb willing to be silent and be slaughtered and thinking that he fails to have the authority of his father to do things. Even the Messiah himself corrected Peter on the night he was arrested. When Peter wanted to do the Moses thing, pull a sword out and whack on some another Egyptian here. And the Lord said to Moses, put the sword away. Those that pick up the sword will die by the sword. Don't you understand, Peter, that I have the authority from my father. If I wanted to have legions of angels come to my aid right now, I could call on them. By the way, a legion is somewhere between six and 12,000. He said, I can call multiple units of angels numbering six to 12,000 each are at my command. If I speak it, they're dead. He said, we're doing this so that the prophecies will be fulfilled. So that redemption will come to Israel. Do not be fooled into thinking that the Messiah does not have the authority of Almighty God. He does. In fact, he is Almighty God. He's one with his Father. And very soon, when the Lord does come back, we're going to get a dose of that. Because I guarantee you that the day he comes back, the scripture is very emphatic, this debated person whom we call Messiah, it clearly says every knee is going to bow to him. Every tongue is going to confess. He is the Lord. He really is. And he will demonstrate that he has that authority. So do not be misled at this point by, by that, because that's the lesson that we're supposed to be learning here. Do not ask Pharaoh to let the people, you tell him that I'm going to save these people. And this is the same thing that the Messiah would be coming back to tell another Pharaoh, one whom we call the Antichrist or the Anti-Messiah, another Pharaoh who will be raised up, who will have forgotten Yeshua ben Yosef, and he will try to oppress God's people, and the Messiah will come and do his great salvation, and by compulsion, the Anti-Messiah will surrender his kingdom. He will not do it voluntarily. 
just as Pharaoh did. So, wonderful lessons about God's authority. And I want you to take note of this because uh, this same dialogue is going to get repeated for us again. If you look with me to the end of chapter 6, beginning at verse 29, we have a little genealogy about Moses and about his brother Aaron. One of the things I want you to take note of that, that the genealogy of Moses is both sides, both male and uh, his father and mother are of Levite, but of Aaron, who will become high priest of Israel, the Bible specifically says that his um, father will be a Levite, but his wife will be of the tribe of Judah. And therefore, the future high priest's sons of Aaron will come from Levi and Judah. And that's the reason that genealogy is given there. Another correlation that the Messiah is a king-priest, that there's a correlation there. Now it says in verse 29, chapter 6, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Whoa, 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 we, we just read that, didn't we? You know, back there in verse 9, didn't we just read that? Yeah, that same conversation. And now we have the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And here's this same question coming up again. Did Moses not listen or pay attention before? What, what's going on here? Is the Bible being redundant? No, this is a dead giveaway to people who study the Torah. Anytime you see the Torah repeat something, boy, it, you know, blinking lights ought to go off. You ought to stop, put the brakes on, set the emergency brake, get out and say, whoa, something's going here. What? I need to get this. The Lord is repeating something and he is not redundant. And something special is happening here. What is going on? Chapter 7, verse 1 is the answer. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And when Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. He's trying to make sure that you and I get this message of God's authority and what he's getting ready to do. I want you to understand something, brethren. This great salvation that you and I enjoy in the new covenant is not some sheepish thing. This is by the command of God. You know, he has looked down upon you like he looked at the sons of Israel and he says, I will redeem you. I will deliver you. And the reason I want you to take note of that is that one of the most common things that happens to a lot of our New Covenant believers is they come to faith and they kind of have doubts. Well, you know, I kind of I kind of wanted God to save me, but you know, I don't know if God's really saved me or not. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know. We call it assurance of salvation. One of the things that will satisfy all your issues of assurance of salvation, one of the things that will build your confidence in God's great salvation is if you'll listen to his words and look at the resolve that he has toward you, the great love that he has for you, and the fact that by the authority of God, by the authority of God, he's delivered you, not by your good works, not by anything you've done, not by the words or things of other people, by his hand. And do not misinterpret that outstretched arm on that cross as meaning that he capitulated. That's just the price he paid. I guarantee you he had the authority to pull his hand right out of that nail and off that cross and could have wiped him out. But he paid a price because he said, I will do it. And he did it. 
Therefore, this salvation that we've had is a great salvation. And anything that we see here of the great story of the Exodus, it should speak volumes to us. It's the same God. It's the same plan of salvation. And he has brought us out of the house of slavery of sin. He has delivered us. He has redeemed us. And we're going to be in his kingdom. That's his plan. And that's what's been manifested unto us and brought to us. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail of the judgments tonight. I wish I had more time, but the rest of this portion will take us through the first seven judgments that have come upon. And the thing that I want you to take note of, and this is the part that I want you to get a picture of, is there's a lot more going on here than just meets the eye. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, if you've, if you've read these passages before, you know out of these ten judgments that we had the judgment first of the water turned into blood, the judgment of frogs, gnats, swarms of insects, moraine on the cattle, boils, hail with fire, locusts, darkness, and then ultimately the death of the firstborn. But the one thing that Torah teachers will always try to point out to you, and I'm going to point out to you, is this is not just ten judgments. This is three sets of three judgments with a final judgment. Because there's a clue given in each one of these judgments as they get ready to be announced, and it goes something like this. In Exodus chapter 7, and beginning at verse 14, this first judgment, Moses will be instructed to get up early in the morning and go down to the water. Go down to the river Nile. You'll meet Pharaoh down there. He'll be down there at the river Nile. And this is what I want you to say to him. I want you to tell him that you want Pharaoh to know the Lord. And the Lord wants Pharaoh to know him. And so when you do that judgment, when you take that staff and you cause the waters to turn into blood, we're going to do that judgment at the river Nile. The second judgment, he's told to specifically go into Pharaoh, into his palace. And so he goes into his palace and he pronounces the judgment of frogs. The third judgment is totally unannounced. He does not give any forewarning to Pharaoh whatsoever about the judgment, the judgment of gnats. And what will follow is the fourth judgment will be at the river Nile, the fifth will be at the palace, the sixth will be unannounced. The seventh judgment will be at the river Nile, the eighth will be at the palace, and the ninth will be unannounced. There are three sets of threes. There's a pattern. And anytime you see patterns like this, we can do what we call an array. In other words, this is a multidimensional, very powerful, very wise God who is manifesting himself to us. And what else do we see here? If I take the first judgment at the River Nile, all the judgments that are at the River Nile, the first, the fourth, and the seventh. The first one at the River Nile is taking liquid water and turning it into blood. The second one is taking water in the form of like a mist. The gnats came up like the, like the, like the mist of a fog. I mean, they looked like fog. They looked like water uh, moisture, uh, vapor. That's how thick they were. It was like fog of gnats. And the third was hail, water which is solid. Liquid, gas, and solid. In other words, God is not only whacking the Egyptian gods, but he's also proving, which is one of the things he says right here in the end, he says after that final judgment, he says, there's no one like me in all of the earth. The song that we sing traditionally in our liturgical part of our service, Mika Mocha, who is like the Lord. Do you know where that song really originates from? It's from Exodus. We are recounting the song that the children of Israel sang when they saw all the judgments of God. And they said, who is like the Lord? There is no one like the Lord. This is not sheepishly presenting himself. This is presenting himself and manifesting himself dramatically. He said, I'm going to use water against you in the liquid form, in the gaseous form, and in the solid form. I'm going to whack you every which way there is to whack you. 
if it had been a knife, he would have come up and said, I'm going to cut you deep, I'm going to cut you wide, and I'm going to cut you continually. I'm going to get your whole attention. So God is not holding back you know, at this point. And there are other studies, we don't have time, but there are other studies where you can go into this matrix of these judgments. And one of the most fascinating studies that you'll find, there are parallels to those three sets of seven judgments up in the book of Revelation. Now, if God is getting the world's attention with three sets of three judgments, what do you think the world is in for when he does uh, three sets of seven judgments each? I have news for you. It'll truly be the greater exodus. It'll be a lot bigger, a lot more to look forward to. Everybody will know who the Lord is. Everybody. The one last thing that I'll conclude with has to do with, um, I guess, one of the problems that a lot of teachers have with this. Well, not so many the teachers, but people, students of this who have studied the story of the judgments and so forth. They hear every time one of these judgments here, they hear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And they're like, you know, I don't think God was being very fair about this. And one of the things that we as young believers tend to do, we kind of lay attributes on God. We kind of want to make God in our image rather than we be made in his image. And so one of the things that we do is we think that fairness is a wonderful um, concept. And so we try to take that attribute, that good thing, and we try to lay that on God. Well, if he really is God, then he doesn't have to be fair with a man. He's God. And therefore, if it says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he might manifest himself unto all of us, you know, I have news for you from God's perspective. Tough. He should have repented. To illustrate this aspect, there's an ancient uh, uh, Hebrew story that we, we tell about Pharaoh. Pharaoh died. This whole deal was over with. Pharaoh got wiped out. And uh, sure enough, uh, Pharaoh got judged. He got sent to hell. Only he's been stationed at a particular place in hell. He's not in the middle, not off some corner. He's at the gate. And the Hebrews teach and the, and the Torah teachers teach that every tyrant in this world, every dictator, every pharaoh type, every leader who would try to oppress God's children, his people, when he comes to hell, and they all will, when they all come to hell, the first person they have to meet is Pharaoh. And they have to suffer the indignity of Pharaoh questioning every one of these tyrants that come down. And Pharaoh is said to say, didn't you learn anything from me? You didn't learn? I mean, God used me as the example of all tyrants that under compulsion we will yield to the living God. We're not God. He's bigger than us. And we must submit. And so in a strange sort of way, Pharaoh is this lesson to us. And from the context of his heart being hardened, it should be a warning to everyone. Do not harden your heart against the Lord. You need to appeal to God's mercy and his kindness and his grace, and you need to deal with that part of God. Do not put God to the test of who's God. In fact, later on, you'll hear it in the scripture where God says, do not test me. You'll lose. That issue's been decided. I'm not relenting on that one. And I think that's appropriate and necessary. Quite honestly, why? So that our confidence will be in him. Our confidence will be in him as our champion. You know the name Gabriel? The archangel Gabriel? You know what his name means? God is my champion. He's my hero. He was the one who came to announce the Messiah's coming. God as my champion came to announce the champion of our faith. And if we'll get a picture of our God in this way, we will then accomplish what God was trying to accomplish here. We will come to know the Lord. And if you'll begin to see God as your Redeemer, your Deliverer, 
your Savior, your champion, and your God, your Lord, the yod heh vav God, who is, there is no God like this God, then your confidence toward God will abound, and your walk before him will go well. And you will be, like Moses, charged. You'll be under his anointing. Amen? Father, thank you for the great story of Moses and the Exodus. Thank you, Lord, for the great pattern of our Messiah, the anointed one to come forth to provide salvation and deliverance to us by a powerful and outstretched hand. And Lord, I would pray that for our folks, for us in this assembly, Lord, that we'd get a vision to know you, to come to terms with who you are, to place our confidence in your hand, your power, your authority, to know that there's nothing that happens to us that isn't by your permission, because we belong to you, and that we can have confidence in your authority and your power to accomplish this great work we call life. I thank you, Lord, for each family. I thank you, Lord, for our congregation. And I ask, Lord, that through your Torah and through the teaching of the great events with our ancestors, that you'll encourage us in our faith. And I ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.